Justin Hunter, and along with me today is Doctors Layton Flowers and Tim Stratton. Uh, guys, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us, Braxton. Great to be here. Thanks, Braxton, for hosting us. Yeah, and and let me say some things about this because this is a little bit different from what we typically do here. Once upon a time, Trinity Radio was not primarily geared toward atheism and other. Uh, um, you know, uh, uh, non-Christian perspectives. At one time, it was, if not always, at least a lot of the time, focused on theological disagreements that believers might have. And I had believe I had debates on those type of issues with uh, professors from other schools and things like that. Uh, but that has changed uh, of late, and we've been focusing more on specifically apologetics toward atheism. However, this is pretty interesting because. Um, those of you who watch our channel know that one of the issues that I focus on and have done a lot of thinking about is um, the nature of human freedom, because atheists, uh, particularly atheist naturalists, hold mm -hmm. to overwhelmingly seem to hold to uh, determinism, the idea right. that free will, at least in the way that you typically think about it, uh, does not exist and that your actions and your beliefs and your thoughts are all determined. It might surprise you to know that there are Christians who hold that position as well. And they come from what is called the Reformed tradition and are Calvinistic uh, because of the work of John Calvin. And so these uh, Christians, if I try to charitably put this, believe that because of God's sovereignty, and we would describe God's sovereignty differently, of course, but because of God's sovereignty and his control over all things, um, he determines indirectly through secondary causes everything down to the movement of the smallest molecule. Now, not all Calvinists are in the same camp, but uh, Calvinism qua Calvinism seems to rely on this kind of determinism. Um, but uh, most of Christianity affirms libertarian freedom, or at least uh, does not affirm Calvinism. And so this is an interesting debate within Christianity as well. And so I think it's important that we discuss it. Now, let me talk a little bit about my two guests for a minute here. Um, Tim Stratton is important to me because about the time I decided to move away from these theological discussions and get back into apologetics toward atheists, I, I prayed that God would give me some way of using what I had learned in the theological debates with Calvinists to, to do evangelism and apologetics toward atheists. At the time, I, I wasn't really aware that Tim Stratton and at least one other apologist were doing the same sort of work with free will that I was. But in a moment of prayer, um, I, I, I realized that uh, William Lane Craig's moral argument could be adapted to a free will argument for God's existence. And I used that in a debate with Matt Dillahunty last year. And I feel like that uh, was effective and really effective with everyday people who already come prepackaged with the belief that they do have free will of the sort that the three of us affirm. I didn't know that Tim Stratton was simultaneously working on an argument that was very similar. And because of that, Tim has become important to me. Uh, he helped me a little bit to prepare for that debate. And he runs a ministry that focuses and kind of orbits around that topic called, um, uh, it's the free thinking argument is your argument. And it's freethinking.com org. <laughs> <laughs> Close. Uh, yeah, it is the free thinking argument. And I also have the free thinking argument against naturalism, yeah. uh, to be specific. I have several different free thinking arguments, but the website is freethinkingministries.com. Yeah, and, and I've, I've written uh, at least a couple of articles for that, including a breakdown of my debate with Matt Dillon. That's right. How the free will argument works with that. But Tim, yeah. 
Tim means a lot to me in that regard. And, and, and I don't know if I ever told you this directly, Tim, but it serves as confirmation to me that, uh, that we would both be working on these kind of arguments. And so um, it's great yeah. to have you here. And um, so Dr. Stratton, we're glad to have you with us. And Leighton Flowers has been uh, very important to me because uh, we, because we were, this is back when I was still dealing with these theological debates, Leighton uh, and I began talking and sharing ideas and, uh, and, and he came to work for Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary and is one of our professors of systematic theology and soteriology and maybe a couple of other courses and has become a very, very close friend. He's invited me to speak at the Unapologetics Conference. He is the head of evangelism and apologetics, I think, for Texas Baptists all over the state of Texas and uh, has opened a lot of doors for me and has become a dear, dear friend and um, and runs uh, his own YouTube channel and podcast called Soteriology 101. So whether you're a, an atheist, um, a, a Muslim, a Christian, or anything else, if you are interested in this discussion of how Christians think about within Christianity about the nature of salvation and human freedom, you would love Dr. Flowers' Uh, show. So uh, go check that out. Leighton, did I get all that right? And do you have anything to add to that? Well, I just can't believe you didn't mention our, our trip to Israel together because, you know, that was that was something that we shared as, as a fellow apologist and uh, friends as well, uh, getting to ride on a bus next to uh, William Lane Craig and Mike Lacona and Mark Middleberg and Sean McDowell and uh, a ton of other great apologists um, that uh, we were able to uh, not only listen to the guide, but listen to some of the best biblical scholars in the world <laughs> while we were driving around Israel together. Yeah. Uh, and that's one of those memories I'll never forget with you, Braxton. Well, that's a door you opened for me. And it is very nice to sit in Jerusalem and have breakfast with, and, and these are the people at your table, William Lane Craig and his wife, Sean McDowell and his wife, Mike Lycona and his wife. Pretty cool, you know? <laughs> yeah, it was very much so. Uh, and I think you went on that trip the next year, didn't you, Tim? Yeah, just last October, I was there uh, with Mike Lacona and Sean McDowell and Paul Copan and all those guys. So uh, fantastic trip. If anybody, if there's any listeners are out there and you haven't made it to Israel, you know, once this pandemic is over, make sure you find a way to get down there. It's unbelievable to walk in the same places that Jesus walked. So uh, yeah, definitely a life transforming experience. Uh, as we get started here, Jim Amberg, thank you so much. Jim Amberg is such a benevolent uh, supporter of what we do here, and thank you so much for that. He says, Happy Good Friday, and yes, I'm glad you said that so we could remember to mention that, but thank you, Jim. Um, all right, uh, as, as we jump in here, let's, uh, let, let's explain a little bit. So we're responding to uh, another Christian who is our brother in Christ. We love him. I'm sure we'd be close friends with him if we got to hang out with him. And uh, he is a French philosopher who was an atheist, became a Christian. So praise God for that. Um, while we three think that Calvinism is false and that determinism is false, um, I, I, I know I can speak for myself and say, I, I want you to believe true things, but I'd rather you be a Calvinist than an atheist any day. All right. So, so, right. so glad. I think we can all agree with that. So, um, but, uh, but let's go ahead and, and jump in. He made a response on another podcast, Eli Ayala's uh, podcast at Revealed Apologetics and the YouTube channel linked in the description. And that he responded to, Binyan responded to the three of us, which um, I appreciate. Uh, I love it when people like that take what we do seriously. And so we're going to uh, listen to some clips of where today he's responding to me. 
Now, if you want to hear the thoughts he had on Dr. Flowers and get Flowers' response as long as, as well as me and Tim, you can go to uh, uh, Flowers' channel at Leighton Flowers on, on YouTube. Just search it. Um, and, and next week, we're going to do Tim. Uh, maybe next week. We'll do Tim. Uh, sometime we will. And you can go there. If you're seeing this sometime in the future, there's probably a playlist linked. And so you can check them all out there. So we're going to jump right in and hear what uh, has, what uh, Bignon has to say about what I had to say several years ago. All right, here we go. So here, here's what Braxton says. He says, Calvinism requires a redefinition of established terms and ideas leading to theological contradictions. The term free and all its der uh, derivatives must be redefined. The notion of freedom that we use every day is called libertarian freedom. This means that man is genuinely free to choose between two or more options. However, Calvinists understand God's foreordination and predetermining of all things to override man's freedom in such a way that what Calvinists mean when they say we are free is that man will do whatever his desires and influences dictate that he will do. But he is never able to make a genuinely free choice to do anything. This is known as compatibilism. And all consistent Calvinists who understand this recognize that they must be compatibilists. It means that man really isn't free. In fact, it's called soft determinism. He must do whatever his desires mandate, but his desires were determined for him. How would you respond to those statements by uh, Dr. Hunter? Yeah, so this is more definitions. Uh, so there's a great deal that's correct here. I mean, I agree that the Calvinist must be a compatibilist. I think that's the sensible position to take. And so you do affirm determinism. Yes, uh, it's not a dirty word, uh, but it is the, the Calvinist view. Uh, but there's a couple of problems in just the uh, definitions here. So the first thing is compatibilists don't claim that following one's strongest desire is a sufficient condition for free will. That's an important piece to catch. Um, when I speak of the conditional sense of ability to do otherwise, right, I could do otherwise if I wanted to. I say that that's necessary for moral responsibility. I do not say that it is sufficient for moral responsibility. Um, and one way to see that is because if you did affirm that, then your view would be, so the Calvinist view, uh, if they, they were affirming that, that would fall to what's called manipulation arguments. So there's a number of arguments about, so it's an argument by analogy that if you're manipulated, well, let's say a, a brain scientist was just putting electrodes in your brain and making you do something, uh, that's allegedly you're not morally responsible for that. But if you are finding yourself in this situation, then it is the case that you have the conditional ability to do otherwise, namely that you could have done otherwise if you had wanted to. But now you couldn't have wanted to because of the electrodes of the uh, mad scientist. But uh, with a, a manipulation case like this, um, you cannot say that he is morally responsible. Now, obviously, I think that the mad scientist and God are not relevantly analogous. So that, that's my response to the manipulation arguments. But we can see that it's not sufficient to affirm that you have the conditional ability to do otherwise. That's not a sufficient condition for moral responsibility. But obviously, it doesn't follow that. Therefore, you should have the categorical sense of ability. I'm just saying that the conditional sense in itself is not sufficient. You need other caveats in order to affirm more responsibility. So that's just a, a, a very important piece to point out. We don't say that following one's strongest desire is a sufficient condition for free will. Mm. We claim it. All right, guys. Um, any initial thoughts on that clip before I give my thoughts? Uh, first of all, I would just say that determinism is a dirty word. 
that I think uh, we need to avoid. Um, and we'll talk about that more uh, probably next week. But um, I don't know. I, I was a little confused. You know, I'm not always the sharpest uh, tool. Uh, but, but uh, you know, it seemed to me like, okay, you're saying that, uh, that the conditional ability is necessary, but it's not sufficient for moral responsibility. Am, am I tracking with them? Is that what he said? I, I think that's right. Yes. So if it's merely a necessary uh, condition, but it's not sufficient, then that would mean that more is required for moral responsibility. Is that right? I, I think so far, that's that's right. Okay, and I don't think he gave us what that more is, did he? I don't think so. Well, okay, and, so we're we're go ahead. I'm sorry. I I said, well, if that's the case, then we're left uh, in. You know, we just don't have enough information to, to deal with him at this point. Uh, I'm just a little bit confused. I need more. Leighton, any thoughts on that as we begin? Well, he, he speaks of the analogies. Um, and obviously, I, I'm kind of known for my analogies because I like to use stories, story time with Uncle Leighton and all. Um, but uh, the reason we have analogies, the reason Jesus uses analogies even is to help uh, to take something that is divine, that is difficult to understand, and yeah. to put it into human language so that we can get it. Um, and so analogies like the lost coin or the lost sheep are not to be, um, are, are not given in order for people to, to relate every single aspect of a sheep to humanity or to a rock, to God, or whatever the analogy is. The, the point is to, to, to make one specific point that's an that's analogous to a divine attribute of some sort that's hard to understand. And in the same way, when we in philosophy use uh, speculative arguments or analogies like we did in our last episode with the, the love potion or these kinds of things, they're not to say that every single component of the analogy is one-to-one is -one ratio the same. It's simply to draw that one point out from that analogy. And so when he says the mad scientist is not, uh, he says it's not relevantly analogous to yeah. um, to God. Um, well, how, how how on what basis do you say that? Is it just your opinion that you think it's not? It, this reminds me of my discussion with Chris Date over the same subject, who is also a, a theistic determinist. And and finally, after I pushed him on this issue over and over again, he just said, "Well, Leighton, I just can't relate to you on that point." Um, and to which I have to push back and say, "Well, what is the reason?" you can't relate to me on that point. And what is the reason that I relate differently to that point than you do, if not uh, God's decree, if not God's sovereign determination? And so the very the very reason that he doesn't believe it's relevantly analogous, and we do, is because both because of God's determination, which I think makes the whole discussion uh, irrational from the start. Yeah, so uh, first of all, I want to say uh, thanks MJ Jackson for the super chat. Another person that always helps us out financially to keep the show going, and we really appreciate you. And MJ was just recently on the show this week. And so I think if you go back uh, to the last video, actually, as of right now, um, you can you can get that. So thanks so much, Matt, one of our Trinity students. So we got at least two professors here and uh, a Trinity student. Um, and, and Tim, we've you know, we need to get you teaching some courses for us. Then this will be a full-blown Trinity. Uh, uh, <laughs> but uh, but anyway. Uh, I, I'm up for that. All right. So so anyway, so uh, toward the beginning of Beyond's book, 
which again, uh, he's got a book on moral responsibility and how that works on compatibilism. It is the best book on the subject that I've ever read from a Calvinist, and I recommend it heartily, partly because I think he's so straightforward and clear about what he's trying to say that I think when some, I think that for many people, when they understand it, then they can judge it for themselves more carefully and clearly than I think they can with some other books. And I like that about it. Um, now, toward the beginning of that book, he lays out several things that non-Calvinists have put forward as analogies to, uh, to, to what they think determinism is. So some of us have said, well, that just makes you into a robot, or as C.S. Lewis might have said, an automaton, right? Or that makes you into a puppet. Or that makes you like a pet that you know that, that who has limited free will or whatever. Or uh, it's like being coerced, or it's like being you know threatened, or wh whatever you want to say there. Which is kind of like what he says here with it's like there's electrodes on your brain, right? Well, here's the thing about that. In in each case, he shows how the particular analogy is dissimilar from determinism. So in the case of a marionette, um, the marionette is not conscious, right? Um, and so, in, right. or in the case of being coerced, nobody's got a gun to your head, right? And we kind of covered that, the, the differences there with the love potion last week. Yeah, of course, nobody's got a gun to your head, but you're still being manipulated or coerced in, in that sense of it. What I found the first time I read the book, and I read it more carefully later to make sure I, I, I was getting it right, and perhaps I'm still not getting it right, but to my knowledge, what I, what I take from it, and Bignon, forgive me if, if I'm not characterizing this right, but I think I am. The problem with it is in each of those cases, of course, that we can take any particular analogy and show that there's something that is not directly analogous, but that's kind of to attack the analogy rather than the point of the analogy. Right. And when, what you get when you look at all of these analogies that he mentions uh, that is the same is that in each case, something external to the thing or the agent is determining what the agent will do. And, and that is the part that we find problematic. That's the part that we find similar to determinism, directly similar, directly analogous. Uh, analogous. And so um, because of that, uh, when we come to the issue of the electrodes on the brain, yeah, I think that is analogous to determinism because even the only difference I think he can say is, but, but our experience as humans isn't like that or our experience of humanity is different than a marionette or a robot for these various reasons. Of course, it's yeah. it's somewhat different. That's why this is an analogy and not just the same thing, right? The analogy is in each of these cases and with the electrodes on the brain and with our everyday experience, if determinism is true, something external to us is determining our actions on Calvinism that's God, albeit through secondary causes. Yeah, and we had this same issue with uh, when I did the same kind of an analogy um, and uh, kind of pushing on this this very point and saying, well, you know, robots aren't sentient beings. And I said, okay, well then in our suppositional analogy, let's make him into a sentient being, all things else being equal. In other words, he's programmed just like the robot and all those kinds of things as far as analogy. Let's make him now a sentient being that has feelings. Uh, let's matter of fact, let's put uh, some skin on this robot, make him a moist robot, okay? Um, make him in, in every way like us, but still like the robot in the mechanic sense of using proper mechanics, as uh, Bignon says, um, where somehow the the robot maker is uh, maybe coding the, the proper responses given the proper stimuli that he's also equally coding. Um, you, you don't escape the problem of 
the analogy to begin with by by pointing out all these differences between you and the robot. It, it just doesn't it doesn't work. It doesn't escape the the problem being being presented. Yeah, and I'd just like to add that consciousness is irrelevant here on exhaustive divine determinism. You know, last week on Leighton's show, we discussed uh, the specific mad scientist thought experiment that I offer or analogy. It's a little bit different because I know that, hey, the, the mad scientist is causally determining exactly what uh, Guillaume thinks of and about and exactly how Guillaume thinks of and about it. This includes everything he thinks of and about, uh, all of his thoughts about his beliefs and all of his beliefs about his thoughts, including the next words that are going to come out of his mouth. And then I ask, how can, how can Guillaume, not the mad scientist, rationally affirm any of his thoughts or beliefs? And, and that becomes an impossible task. So here, I mean, the mad scientist is causally determining one's intentional states of consciousness as well. So just because we are conscious and a puppet isn't, it doesn't matter because the mad scientist is still causally determining everything you think of and about and exactly how you think of and about it. So consciousness is irrelevant, as I like to say, all that leaves you with, you're, you're relegated to nothing but a bag of thoughts and beliefs, none of which is up to the bag. You know, it's not even a puppet. It's a, you're just a bag of thoughts and beliefs. I think that's even worse. So uh, you, if one affirms exhaustive divine determinism, you got some major problems. And, and I don't see how responsibility uh, entails at all on exhaustive divine determinism. And I, like I said last week, I'm not just discussing moral responsibility, but also rational responsibility. I think moral responsibility uh, comes along uh, with uh, rational responsibility, and if rational responsibility is lost, so is moral responsibility, but that's a different topic. Um, but I have a good article on this. Uh, I think it's called uh, Rogue One or K2SO Rogue One and a Lesson in Responsibility, where I talk about in that Star Wars movie where the droid K2SO, he was uh, built and programmed by the Empire to have an Empire-loving nature, right? So everything that he did was always, you know, it always approximated to the goal of the empire. But then uh, K2SO was kidnapped, or I, I say droidnapped, by Cassian Andor, who uh, reprograms his uh, robot droid nature uh, against his will, by the way. <laughs> he reprograms his nature to now have a rebel alliance loving nature. And so now he always acts in accord with uh, the, the goals of the rebel alliance. So the way the droid, if, if we, I don't think droids are really conscious, but let's just assume for the sake of the analogy that a, a droid could be conscious here. Um, there's debate about that. But, so let's assume it. Uh, the way the droid thinks of and about things is never up to the droid. It's always up to an external force, an external programmer. Um, and I think that's quite analogous to, to God in this uh at least in the way he views God. So I don't know. What do you guys think? About yeah, I think uh, here's the thing. Uh, that's just another reason to think that Rogue One is in the top two best Star Wars movies of all time. Uh, <laughs> I love that movie. <laughs> but uh, it's Rogue One and Empire for me. Uh, but uh, yeah, but yeah. Uh, but let's but, you know let's take a far less praiseworthy film that I think gives a a really close analogy where there's less to complain about, and so the the problems can be 
uh, clearly seen. And you and I have discussed this before, the reboot of the RoboCop films. There is a yeah. part of that um, uh, movie where uh, where the, the, the people that are kind of, you know, working with RoboCop have mm-hmm. placed a chip in his brain or whatever so that the, what he thinks and desires and the actions that he takes, he believes are his. But what he yeah. does, but he's not aware that someone else is indirectly, or I guess in that case directly, determining what his actions will be. We wouldn't, understanding that, I don't think we would hold RoboCop uh, morally responsible for what he does. Uh, right. But, but anyway, uh, good good movie references there. Late, anything else to add before we move on? Nope, we're good to go. All right, uh, let's let's move on to the next part of that uh, clip. And and by the way, I have to say I appreciate that Beyond was pretty cool. Like even with my explanations of what compatibilism is and and all these kind of things, he says, yeah, I mean, I, I pretty well agree with all that. Obviously, he doesn't agree with me saying that uh, that that Calvinists redefine free will and that it's not genuine free will. Um, later in the later in the episode, and I don't think I have a clip of it, he says something like. Um, well, I, you know, I guess he, Braxton's probably thinking that's what the general population thinks, but I don't think the general population thinks about this stuff. And if they did, uh, maybe they would take my position, I think was the sentiment if he didn't say that directly. Um, but actually, um, I may have mentioned this on the last episode, but there was a poll done of the readership of Scientific America. And, uh, this is, this is obviously a group of people are going to be more inclined towards something like, um, the, you know, with the natural sciences, you're going to get a lot of skeptics, a lot of atheists there who are going to be more likely to be determinists. But still, 59% of them affirmed libertarian freedom. So I think it's safe to say mm-hmm. that the majority of the population at large, yeah, affirms this. So to call it a redefinition, I think probably so. Uh, anything to add to that before I do move on? Well, uh, well, I would say that even, even if you don't theologically uh, affirm libertarian freedom, even even those who hold to thesis determinism will often argue that you've got to live like you do uh, because it's just not a tenable way of living life. Um, you even heard little you know uh, sayings like you know believe like a Calvinist but preach like an Arminian or witness like an Arminian or pray like an Arminian or whatever it may be. Why? Because uh, living like a Calvinist in the truest sense of the word as a theistic determinist really isn't a tenable way of living life. And I've even done programs. Uh, showing where studies were done uh, with uh, people who one group of people thought they were determined by the right. uh, by, by something, and the other group thought that they were free and responsible, and that the group that is determined was more likely to cheat on uh, on a given test than the ones who felt as as if they were free. And even the ones conducting this test, many of which were skeptics and naturalistic determinists, concluded that while they believed in naturalistic determinism, they felt it was better for society for you to believe in uh, free will. Uh, So Mm -hmm. not only is it more tenable to believe in free will, it's actually uh, better socially and as a citizen to be a better citizen to believe in free will as well. Yeah, and you mean and you mean libertarian freedom at that, yeah, not compatibilistic freedom. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yes. But, you know, I've got a I've got a video on this channel. I'll say this and I'll move on. But I've got a video on this channel where I respond to a casual discussion between two YouTube atheists. One of which is a student at Harvard uh, or Oxford. I'm sorry, um, and that's Alex um, O'Connor. But uh, they're discussing this, and they're, they they totally buy into determinism. I mean, just determinism qua determinism as atheists. And and their thing is, we've got to get this stuff taught in school. And I'm thinking, no, wow. even if you believe it's true, don't teach this in school, right? Uh, all right, yeah. let's let's move. Hey, on. I, yeah, go well, ahead. Can I add one yeah, thing? Yeah, um, you know, uh, 
if he's saying that the general population might affirm uh, compatibilistic freedom, no, 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 libertarian uh, freedom, I, libertarian freedom. Oh, but that, but but Guillaume thinks, oh, that they yeah. might yeah. affirm otherwise, right? Um, you know, it's just see, you know, we, we've already discussed movies. There's so many movies that at least indirectly reference these issues, and uh, imply heavily imply that libertarian freedom is responsible at least some of the time. I mean, we could even go to the Avengers movie, uh, movies now, or the Captain America movies, when uh, what what uh, it was Civil War, when Tony Stark um, he blames uh, Bucky for killing his parents when it was the evil the evil guy that took control of his mind again everything he thought of and about and exactly how he thought of and about it and the whole everybody watching that film knows that tony stark has lost his mind when he's trying to kill bucky because bucky wasn't responsible for killing tony's parents it was the villain right and you know that's why captain america defended him right. and so i mean that's just a, i mean there's so many movies that the the popular or just the uh, the average person digests that we see the importance of uh, libertarian freedom. That these movies heavily imply libertarian freedom. So uh, it wasn't, in, in fact, it wasn't until I understood Calvinism, the Calvinistic theology, that I rejected my previous understanding of libertarian freedom. And I didn't know the the terms at the time. I just I, I called libertarian free will just free will back then. And then I found out about Calvinism and I read about Calvin and I, be, I said, oh, we don't have free will. Uh, we are causally determined in every manner. So it wasn't until I had Calvinism uh, shoved down my throat, basically, <laughs> that I rejected my everyday understanding of libertarian freedom. And it took a lot to, uh, to help me come to my senses. Uh, S.J. Thomason says, Braxton and Tim, twins separated at birth, doppelgangers. <laughs> I think Tim's a little, well, more, I'm a little more in shape than me, but I appreciate it all the same. Uh, hey. uh, yeah, hey. I, I, I don't. What the, I, the quarantine fifteen is bad on me. What I don't have in common with either of you is I don't have a cool. I used to be a Calvinist story. So um, uh, <laughs> you were the only one smart enough of the three of us to stay away from maybe it. That, yeah. Maybe that was. It. All right, let's move on to the next thing: uh, the prescriptive and de uh, decretive will of God. Let's see. Um, for us to keep in mind. Now, he continues, uh, Dr. Hunter says, evil is according to the will of God in the Calvinist position, right? The Holocaust, a child molested, it's according to the will of God. Every aborted child, every case of cancer, every traffic accident. Uh, he, he kind of lifts to kind of some premises here. He says, uh, one, if Calvinism is true, then sin is the will of God. Two, but sin isn't the will of God. Three, therefore, Calvinism must be problematic. How would you respond to that? Uh, I guess a deductive argument, right? He's kind yeah. of okay. Yeah, it's a it's a deductive argument. Uh, the the first thing that I want to point out is that there's a couple of affirmations in there that are actually self-refuting. Um, okay. When he talks about uh, aborted child, okay, that means that the abortionist and maybe the the parents of the children have free will and have their libertarian free will on his view. But when he complains about every case of cancer or every traffic accident, there's no free will involved in those. Right, a, a, a cancer cell does not have free will. I mean, an automobile does not have libertarian free will. So neither of those two things actually matter with respect to the debate between Calvinists and non-Calvinists. So if uh, you can blame God for uh, can the cases of cancer and traffic accidents um, on Calvinism, then equally so on libertarianism. 
So I think that those cases need to be taken out. I believe that Jerry Walls also in his writings uh, complains about God causing car accidents, uh, but the, the automobile doesn't have libertarian free will. So that's irrelevant in the debate between libertarians and uh, compatibilists. Mm -hmm. um, the, the second piece and how I would more fundamentally respond to the, uh, the, the deductive argument here uh, is that it's equivocating on the will of God. That is that uh, there's two different things that philosophers and theologians have called the will of God. Uh, this is quite standard. I'm sure that uh, it's not new for many of your listeners. There is the uh, prescriptive will of God, which is what God says he um, commands us to do. That's what he, on some degree, desires that we do. He tells us, do this, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, do not commit adultery, do not murder. Uh, those are commands, and that's the prescriptive will of God. And then there is the decretive will of God, which on Calvinism is the one that is always done. That is that it's the decree, it's the ultimate will of God that is going to come about at uh, all the time. And mm -hmm. so... Uh, here, there's clearly an equivocation between premise one and premise two. If okay. Calvinism is true, then sin is the will of God. Well, which one is it? It's the decretive will of God, yes. But sin isn't the will of God. This is the one that is prescriptive. That is that that's in that sense that it's not the will of God. So the Calvinist doesn't find himself caught by this uh, that by this deductive argument. He affirms. That... All right, guys, what do you think? Well, I, I would first jump in and say, um, if, if it's a creative will, according to a Calvinist, all things happen by sovereign decree. In other words, everything falls within the secret will of God. So whatever comes to pass was according to his decree. Yet you have passages, and there's several of them, that suggest very strongly that God did not desire or even decree certain things, like in Jeremiah, uh, what is it? Uh, I was just about to look it up, 19.5, uh, I believe it is that they're burning their children to Malek, as we mentioned before. Uh, and it says, I did not command this, nor did I decree it. And that's in the ESV translation even, which is the Calvinistic favorite translation. And then he goes on to say, it didn't even enter my mind, which really strongly suggests that God didn't have anything to do with it, whether prescriptive or uh, decreative. Um, and, and so I think what I've often explained is that sometimes Calvinists will create two kinds of, of a lot of different aspects in order to unfalsify their view. So uh, two separate kinds of love, a common love and then an effectual love. It's two kinds of callings, a, a yeah. common call and effectual call, two kinds of will, a, a, an external will or prescriptive will versus the sovereign will. And that way, any verse you bring up, which clearly shows uh, something against their claims, they can always just drop it into that bucket. And, and again, this just makes their view unfalsifiable. Yeah, you see that also with uh, God's desires. He has, uh, yeah, he desires all people to be saved, but he has a greater desire uh, for his glory. And for that, you know, he has to send the majority of humanity to hell and things like that. I, I deal with John Piper on that issue quite a bit. But when I also think about the prescriptive versus the descriptive will, it doesn't make sense to me. Maybe I'm missing something. But if, if God says, hey, let me prescribe to you how you ought to think and act. You know, this is how, if God said, this is how you ought to think and act. But, hey, I've causally determined your nature, something about you to always act otherwise. And so, hey, I'm going to punish you for acting uh, exactly the way that I've causally determined you uh, to, to think and act and always behave. So that just doesn't seem intuitive. I don't, I mean... You, does that make sense to you guys? Uh, well, it's, my thing about it is I think that talking about the two wills of God 
makes um, sense if libertarian freedom is in play. So, for example, I can, and this is a little bit different, but, but I could say about my children, I have two wills. I, I have the will that my daughters both go to college, right? But right. I also have the will that they make their own decisions about things. And, and those right. may be in conflict. But I could, I could unify that meaningfully and without contradiction by saying, I have a will that both my daughters freely go to college and they may or may not freely go to college, but that's what my mm-hmm. will is. But if you don't have libertarian freedom, then it's kind of like this. It, it's, and, and of course, again, don't attack the analogy. Attack the point of the analogy if you attack this. But it seems to me like um, we, we've got, we've got uh, you know, someone is about to paint a painting and they say, now my, my, what I really want for this is that it be a beautiful painting. I'm, I, and all happy, all good, nothing bad in this painting. I want it to be a real Bob Ross here. I mean, we're going to have happy clouds and happy trees and everything's going to be happy. There's going to be no evil, no suffering in this mountainscape with trees and all these kind of things. And, and, and so he tells the brush. Now, brush, when, when, we, when we paint this picture, this needs to be a happy picture. That's my ultimate will for this painting. And then he begins to paint and there's suffering and death. And there are some happy clouds and some happy trees. There's also a lot of bad stuff in the painting. Yeah. You know, in what sense can we can can the man say to the brush, why did you paint that picture when my ultimate will was to paint the happy scape and the happy clouds and all these kind of things? Um, now, right. you might say, but the difference yeah. there, and I think Guillaume would say, the difference there is we aren't brushes. Brushes don't have a conscious experience. Brushes... Um, uh, uh, do make choices, even if those choices are determined. And in the, and, and as far as that goes, you're absolutely right. But what would be similar is even if um, God, uh, the, the painter is directly holding the brush and we are controlled by secondary causal factors, the reality is, and even if we have a conscious experience, and even if we do make choices, all of that is determined uh, ultimately like the brush is determined by the painter. Um, have mm-hmm. I said anything that, that yeah. flies off the rails there? No, I think you're right on. And, and it, to use your first analogy uh, to, to, to really illustrate how I, I think untenable the deterministic worldview is. Um, and again, I think you emphasized it right. It's, it's okay to talk about two senses of a will of God, uh, like a father for his daughter to go to college. Um, but suppose that you were the one who ultimately controlled your daughter's greatest desire as to whether she goes to college or not. And you were expressing outwardly to your wife and to your family, I really want my daughter to go to college. But then behind the scenes, you go behind the scenes and then you you manipulate this, 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 this to where your daughter can't want to go to college. And then therefore she chooses not to go to college. And if anybody found out you were doing that because somebody told them, namely a, a, maybe a Calvinist friend came along and started telling your family what you were doing behind the scenes, then guess what your daughter's going to start thinking? Your daughter's going to start, I don't know that I can trust my father because apparently he's manipulating my desires behind the scenes to make me not want to do what he says he wants me to do. Therefore, how do I know what he really wants? Because she couldn't couldn't even trust that thought, right, Tim? Right. That's right. Because on exhaustive divine determinism, her thought that, well, I don't know if I can trust God or in your daughter's case, I don't know if I can trust my dad. Well, you would be causing and determining that thought as well. So again, this is that what Dr. Craig calls that sense of vertigo that sets in. Um, it's, <laughs> but you can't even say that that sense of vertigo is warranted or justified because again, that sense of vertigo would, would be causally determined. So this is just the absurdity 
of the view that really thought that, that Guillaume and so many other Calvinists, James White, that uh, I could go down the list, uh, John Piper, these guys want to affirm this exhaustive divine deterministic view. And it is just, uh, it's absurd when you consider everything that's caused and determined. Um, I'm going to throw up one more question before we move on, because Jared Craig is, um, uh, an, uh, I think he said he's not sure exactly, so maybe an agnostic or an atheist, but um, he's asked you a lot of, or asked a lot of questions about your work, Tim, and so I think it's appropriate that he's a friendly guy, but he says here, um, if I am inclined to think that on Molinism, human sin is the will of God, what would be the best work or reference for me to clear this up? So if I if I am inclined they, to think that on Molinism, human sin is the will of God, what what would be the best work or reference for me to clear this up? And maybe you could just answer him directly if you have an answer. Well, yeah, I'd tell him to spend some time on my website. A good pop level uh, version of this would be my interaction with uh, Avengers Endgame and uh, Infinity War, uh, where I show. Um, how Dr. Strange had, uh, how he willed some things into actual existence, uh, even some bad things uh, into actual existence for the, because he knew that that uh, possible future or possible world was the only world in which the evil of Thanos was defeated. So I'd, you know, uh, start there. I also have a response, two responses to Greg Welty on this issue. Uh, my second response really tightens uh, some things up there. Um, but yeah, I think Braxton, what you said is if we have libertarian freedom, then we can make sense of these two wills of God. So I think maybe this might answer Jared's question. Yeah. It, God's desire, he gives us libertarian freedom. And if libertarian free will is, we're not playing word games here, but I really have the ability to obey God's commands or not, then God can create a world in which we have that freedom. And it's we actually can obey God's commands. But since he's given us libertarian freedom, that means we actually can reject God's commands and sin. Now, a God with middle knowledge knows that all of this, and, and uh, I was planning on talking about this later uh, when we're dealing with another quote from uh, Beyond, but God would know uh, he could even call this world very good if he possessed middle knowledge. You know, this, this world filled with sin if he knows that this world also is ultimately the, the best possible or best feasible world, or at least a tide for the best feasible world. Um, so again, I think Braxton, you, you already answered his question when you said these, uh, that the sin um, can make sense, or how did he say it? I'm having a hard time reading it there. Sin is the will Human of sin God. is the will of God. Yeah, I think, I think it makes sense on Molinism. Uh, to say, yeah, this is not my will for you to sin, but I know that you will sin, and I know that sin will be used for the greatest good. And so then you have, then we can talk about these uh, competing uh, wills or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But I don't, think, I don't think it makes sense on exhaustive divine determinism. So, so if I, what I hear you saying, and I, I, this is the way I might put it, is to say, look, um, when Molinists are thinking about God's aware of all possible worlds, that doesn't mean worlds that actually exist out there somewhere, but worlds where there is nothing right. contradictory. They're coherent worlds. Right. And yes, I think that there is nothing, as far as I can tell, contradictory about a world in which everyone is free and everyone doesn't sin. 
However, right. that doesn't mean that there's a feasible world like that for God to create. And, and what I mean when I say that is once you give man free will, there just may not be a world like that. And right. so, um, so if God wishes for man to have free will, he, even if he's God, you can't force someone to freely always do the right thing unless you take a compatibilist, compatibilist view of freedom, which, by the way, on compatibilism, God could have, as Jerry Wall says it, made it such that everyone freely and joyously always does exactly right. the right thing. But he didn't. And why not? Because he wanted certain of these things to happen mm -hmm. that, that seem terrible um, and are terrible. Um, but, uh, but, the, but the bottom line is, uh, if God wants man to have free will and there's not a world uh, where he gives man free will, where they don't sin, then uh, I think most of us would speculate and say he probably chose um, the, the based on some uh, desire that he has, like the most number of people getting freely saved or something like that. But the bottom line is uh, that I think answers it between the two of us. We probably flailed about and answered that somewhere. All right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So you said it much more eloquently than I think I did, but I don't, um, I don't know about that. I, I would just, uh, I have dealt with these with similar questions on my website. So I just point them to free yeah, yeah. ministries. Great, great uh, resource there. All right, let's move on to kinds of love. And uh, we are making some progress. So stick with us. And if some of these quotes are a little bit long, I thought that was important for context. Uh, so just stick with us. How about how about this one? Uh, Braxton says on Calvinism, God loves the elect, not everyone, unless you redefine love. Now, even just at a surface reading of, uh, of that comment, it almost sounds like there's a question-begging assumption in that. Uh, how would you tease that out a little bit if you think there is a question-begging assumption when he says something to the effect that you have to redefine love? Just like they often say, you know, well, Calvinists believe in free will, but you have to redefine freedom, which almost seems to beg the question in favor of their specific understanding. Yeah, a little bit like that. Uh, I think that charitably you can interpret that by saying, Something like I think uh, was that yeah I think that was the opening by Braxton where uh, yes. he said you have to redefine free or redefine free will. I think the charitable interpretation of that is to say it's the um, majority view, it's the common view or the view of the folks on the street that uh, that you are not determined or that you know this is what love means. And so the, when you have to redefine it, they say well you know you have to deny what seems to be the common sense view. Mm. Now, I'm, I actually don't think that this is the common sense view. I don't know that people really have thought about determinism or indeterminism. I think if you just ask them, well, do you need the ability to do otherwise? There's still the big fat equivocation on what kind of ability we're talking about. So then they will say, yes, we need the ability to do otherwise. You can't write them down as libertarians here because there's still this equivocation. Mm -hmm. uh, with respect to love, um, I don't know. Let's, let's not focus on the idea of redefining it. But let's look at what argument we are being given here. They say that um, on Calvinism, God loves the elect, not everyone. But in fact, you should affirm that God loves everyone because he's maximally great. That's actually the uh, omni-argument from Tim Stratton that we skipped earlier. Uh, mm -hmm. It's being addressed here by saying, uh, if um, we don't have libertarian free will, then libertarianism is not the reason why God finds himself uh, not sending uh, everyone to heaven. Um, but then we cannot say that God loves everybody if he doesn't do that. So um, a quick response to that, I would say that uh, this is making love into a binary thing, which it is not. That is that if uh, God 
you know, God loves the elect or he doesn't love them. Um, love, there are complexities in love that even libertarians must admit. Um, okay. it, it obviously is not binary, right? So John was loved by Jesus. Uh, so if that's the case, it's pointless for us to know that he was loved by Jesus, uh, but there's a special love that's affirmed in the Bible, right? Mm -hmm. the, the... Okay, uh, messed up there apparently and had my whole desktop available, but uh, I think that's all right. Nothing, nothing there that, that uh, <laughs> no credit card information, nothing like that. Um, but uh, all right, so um, so I'll, I'll start with this one if that's okay, guys. So I, I think that you know um, if I, if I don't if I don't misunderstand here or, or, or if I'm remembering this properly, D. A. Carson. Uh, tells a student, you know, yeah, you can tell you can tell people that on Calvinism, God loves everyone, but the way that He loves every He loves people in different ways, kind of like beyond references. There are different kinds of love. Well, of course, there are different kinds of love. We we would acknowledge that there are different kinds of love. Um, I love my wife differently than I love you two guys. Thank the Lord. I love my children differently than I love my wife. You know, we, we have these different kinds of senses of love. But um, but D.A. Carson uh, differentiates between three types of love, where on the one hand, you've got salvific love, and Beyond does use that term. You've got salvific love. That's the saving love that God has for the elect and only for the elect. Um, and so he does not love the rest of the world in that sense of salvific love. Uh, there's another sense of love in which God rains on your crops. He, he gives you basically a lot of good stuff while you're here on earth before he determines that you will be um, in hell for all eternity um, without ever having had a libertarian opportunity to choose against that. Um, and you didn't have a libertarian opportunity to choose against any of the sins that you're being held accountable for either. So, um, but, but he loves you because... Uh, at least he's going to give you a bunch of stuff before you go to hell for all eternity. Um, mm -hmm. and, and even, and, and Hey, uh, even, even if, um, something like annihilationism that conditional immortality people would affirm is true. Still, uh, all of that suffering, all of that stuff is going to happen to you despite you're never having a libertarianly free choice. Now walls puts it this way. He says, imagine that, um, a guy, uh, took took four young people and gave them all yeah. millions and millions of dollars. Bought them all Corvettes and cars and mansions and all that. But the but but what they don't know is at the end of this, he's he's going to torture them horribly for the rest of their life and then kill them. Would we say about such a person that they are being loving in any sense toward these people? Um, and then the third uh, uh, issue of love is that that God takes a stance of love toward some people. In other words. And the only way to make sense of this, as far as I can tell, is, I mean, he does extend the offer, but it's to everyone, uh, mm -hmm. I guess, that hears anyway. But if you're determined not to respond, if you're not irresistibly graced, right, Leighton, then in what then in what sense are you? It's just a stance of love. Um, you're not really able to to take advantage of this. So I think that we are well within our rights to simply say. God does not love the unelect. And I think that there are a lot of people who, uh, there, there are a lot of Calvinists who will simply say that, will grit their teeth, bite the bullet, and say, yeah, he doesn't love the unelect. Arthur Pink. Arthur yeah. Pink admitted that. Yeah, yeah and, and John MacArthur actually takes him to task on it because John MacArthur writes a book called The Love of God where he, he challenges that perspective. And he even makes a really good argument, um, MacArthur does, with respect to Christ's love for all people. 
um, because he says if Christ doesn't love all people, then he hasn't fulfilled the demands of the law because the, the demands of the law is to love not only your neighbor, but your enemy. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore, if God doesn't love all, if Christ doesn't love all people, then he hasn't fulfilled the law. Therefore, he can't be the perfect sacrifice. And so MacArthur makes a really cool, uh, I think, argument that really sides more with our perspective because I don't think the kind of love that MacArthur and other Calvinists who try to affirm that God loves the non-elect um, really is consistent because we as Christians, we don't have to guess what the definition of love is. The Bible tells us, First uh, Corinthians, obviously chapter 13, gives us a really good definition of love. And it's interesting that in that chapter, he starts with the negatives. In other words, he said, this is th these are things that love's not. And he talks about to speak with tongues of men and of angels. Well, you have not love. In other words, uh, you, you can have all this knowledge, but if you don't have love, it means nothing. And then he goes on to say, you can have the gift of prophecy and know all the mystery. So you can have all the power and all the knowledge, but if you don't have love, it doesn't mean anything. It's not important. Uh, and then he even goes on to say, you could be benevolent even, like give rain and sunshine, millions of dollars. You could do even benevolence, but if you have not love, it means nothing. In other words, if, if without love, God could be just a, as C.S. Lewis describes it, an omnipotent find, a, um, an all-powerful uh, demon, uh, fiend, I guess is the way it's pronounced. Um, and, and so if you, if, you, if you understand that love is so central to the character of who God is, that when we say God is love, we're describing him in the characteristics that the Bible says, not that we individually all right. pick out for ourselves— and then it goes on to say that, that love is patient, love is kind, it's not jealous, love does not brag, it's not arrogant, love does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own. Well, I mean, Calvinist big statement all the time is God's seeking his own glory through the damnation and the reprobation of the non-elect. He's seeking his glorification through them. How in the world can you call it loving for God to seek his own glorification in the damnation and in the, the wrath poured out on the non-elect and still call it love. It, it's just, it, it, again, I, I appreciate MacArthur bringing that defense, at least to make Calvinism seem at least somewhat more uh, consistent with the scripture's universal uh, expression of God's love for all people, but it is not a consistent worldview as far as I can tell. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I think it's also intuitively obvious that if somebody really loves another person, ultimately that entails a desire for their eternal flourishing. So imagine this, imagine if a husband said to his wife, he said, honey, uh, I love you so much. I'm so thankful that uh, God brought us together. Uh, I just want the best, of, the best for you on this planet, but I actually hope you burn in hell. I think they need marriage counseling, right? I mean, there's a big problem there. That's not love. If the husband said, yeah, I, I will, I will lavish all my, you know, flowers and chocolates every day. And I'll, you know, whatever you need, I'll, I'll get it for you. But I hope you burn in hell. No, that's not love. There, there's some deep problems there. And if a mother was going to say to her daughter, you know, honey, I love you so much. I'm so thankful that God brought you into my life, but I really don't care if you make it to heaven or not. Well, that child, is going to grow up with major problems. So if there is not, uh, if God, if it's going to be said that God loves somebody yet doesn't desire their ultimate flourishing, then I think it's obvious that like Arthur Pink would admit that uh, God does not really love that person. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anything else to add to any of that guys before we move on? 
And actually, the next, the next, uh, the next quote is actually on the same, the same issue. So let's hear more of what he has to say. Calvinists can affirm that God has some desire that they would be saved, right? Um, uh, but he has an overriding purpose not to save them, right? So you can say that that God has a mutually exclusive uh, desires that mm -hmm. uh, they are not compatible with one with another, and yet he chooses one purpose is more important than another. Uh, in the exact same way that the libertarian is going to do with libertarian free will, right? Because the libertarian says exactly the same concept, same thing. He's saying that God wishes everyone were saved. He desires everyone was saved. But there's something else that he desires more than saving everybody. He desires more to give them liberty and free will, mm. which now in turn entails that he cannot save everybody. All right. Um, so God has an overriding desire, um, which, which makes it okay. Uh, but in our case, God doesn't, uh, the over, and, and it's the same in our case, God has an overriding desire to give man libertarian freedom. What are your responses to that, gentlemen? I actually wrote an uh, academic journal article in Perichoresis uh, 16.2, um, and you can get that free online. And I deal with this. I co-authored co this article with Equibus Erasmus from South Africa. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, <laughs> great guy. Um, I think I call it. Uh, Erasmus, the most underrated philosopher in the world today. Well, so. it, it, just as an aside, um, you, I, I contacted him um, in preparation for a debate um, when I was trying to work out the mechanics of my own argument one time, just to make sure I was I was right. And it was because you gave me his information, and I've since oh, yeah. fallen in love with with him. And and by the way, as you begin, just to give you some encouragement here, guys, we have twenty nine thumbs up and one thumbs down. That means one thumbs down for determinism. And 29 thumbs up for free will. So. <laughs> um, and, and of course, if, if Bin Yang is right, all of those thumbs up and down were uh, causally determined right. by God. <laughs> That's right. So, yeah, on that view, I mean, John Piper has really advanced that view. It's like, yeah, God desires, uh, you know, God loves everybody, but he has a greater desire for his own glory. Well, I point out, uh, Erasmus and I point out several problems with that. Ultimately, uh, why is is it needed for the majority of humanity, arguably, to, to suffer for eternity for God's glory? God, Why can't God uh, have his cake and eat it too? It seems like 100% of humanity uh, loving God into the infinite future would bring God more glory. But if it's on some logical uh, like there's some, uh, uh, like these are mutually exclusive ideas for some reason that needs to be spelled out. If that's the case, uh, then it seems to be saying that, well, uh, yeah, God, uh, he can't, he can't be maximally glorified without, uh, human suffering for eternity in hell. Then, then that really means that the cross was not enough and that Jesus didn't pay it all. Uh, in fact, when we thank Jesus for the work he did on the cross, we ought to take a quick minute to thank the damned in hell for the price that they're still paying for the benefit of the elect. Uh, I could go on and on on this, but I encourage people to get uh, my article, uh, Perichoresis 16.2, and uh, that article is called Divine Determinism and the Problem of Hell. And and Tim, if you'll send me the link, I'll put that in the description after we get done since you're right. here. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, you're, it, 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 it's true in a sense that, um, that, yeah, some people end up going to hell and God thought that it was, that there was an overarching good in giving man free will in, in light of that. But here, but here's the thing on the libertarian view Every single person does have the choice to accept or reject that offer of salvation. And even if you want to mention someone like, uh, you know, the, the unevangelized people that um, never hear the gospel or whatever, um, you know, uh, Tim, you probably take a, an answer to that that, that involves Molinism, and, and I think that's a viable candidate too, not to speak for you. Um, with Leighton and I both kind of approach this in a way that I think has— uh, at least some clear examples in Scripture of, of uh, not that the Molinism approach doesn't, but with, um, with uh, the issue of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, he was a man who was open to, uh, to God, and, and, uh, and, and God sends more revelation, right? And everyone has the general revelation of the world around us, such that Paul says that idolaters without, are without excuse. And so, um, so perhaps it, you know, it is the case that if a person is open to uh, the, the God, based on the revelation that they do have through general revelation, then God will send them more um, stuff like that. It's very interesting to me that um, whenever we reach someone in the 1040 window, that's the term for places that have never, people that have never heard the gospel before, we yeah. often find out they were just praying that, that God would reveal himself in some way to them. So, um, so uh, you know, everyone has an option. Everyone has the choice on the libertarian view on, on, and that makes God. I think that magnifies God's justice in that sense. Uh, right. But if, but on the Calvinistic view, um, it, it's not. It, not everyone does have the libertarian choice, and I think mm -hmm. that is a meaningful and powerful difference. Yeah, and I love what C.S. Lewis said on this topic. It's a pretty famous quote, but um, I think it's worth uh, repeating. He says, "God created things which had free will. That means creatures which." can go wrong or right. Some people think they can imagine a creature which has free, the, has, was free but had no possibility of going wrong, but I can't. If a thing is free to be good, it's also free to be bad. And free mm -hmm. will is what has made evil possible. Why That's then right. did God give them free will? Because free will, though it makes evil possible, is the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. A world of automata, of creatures that worked like machines, would hardly be worth creating. The happiness which God designs for his higher creatures is the happiness of being freely, voluntarily united with to him and to each other in an ecstasy of love and delight compared with which the most rapturous love between a man and a woman on this earth is mere milk and water. And for that, they've got to be free. Hmm. And so I just think that, that, that the free will defense, the free will theodicy, uh, that you hear by the leading apologist around the world when confronted by atheists as to why evil exists. All of this rests upon this theology of free will that, yes, God wants a real world worth creating, not just a, a, a computer programmed world or a world of um, you know avatars or robots or puppets or whatever analogy we want to use there. Um, all of those things, the reason we use those analogies is because of the one common denominator with them all, is that on them all, determinism is the root of it, which is ultimately uh, one central being controlling everyone else's choices and desires. And I think intuitively, as we've already mentioned, it is very difficult to come up with a true understanding of blameworthiness, 
uh, responsibility, of uh, punishment, reward, all the things that we know uh, and see throughout the scriptures, uh, it's very uh, difficult for us to swallow the pill of determinism. Mm. All right. Well, I want to say uh, Drew Beatty here uh, says black magic is back on Trinity. The reason he says that is because I've often said that the Calvinism and the soteriology discussions are black magic for hits and views, because if you talk about this issue, people will flock to it. Um, and uh, I have a video on that very issue called black magic, uh, but in the short videos list. Um, but uh, also, guys, um, I want to know if you guys still reject Calvinism after this one. Um, T. Grogan says Calvinism is more consistent because it has been tested and debated for 400 years. Flowers and these guys are making up their own religion. <laughs> by, by God's decree. Wow. By, by, God's, de <laughs> yes. by God's decree. Yes. I, uh, yeah, I agree that it's been tested for centuries, and that's why there's so many non-Calvinists. That's why Calvinism is the minority view in Christianity today. So if he's going to make that argument, it's going to blow up in his face. Or she. Yeah, and this is this is the fallacy called appeal to popularity or appeal right. to authority, where you say, "Hey, look, my 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 view is more famous. My view has right. the better scholars." But it's not more famous. Well, and I, yeah, exactly. I think you've already yeah. pointed that out. But even even yeah. if it were, right. uh, that that would not verify it as true. That's why we we rely upon our exegesis of Scripture of understanding uh, how Romans nine and other passages that are often used as proof texts by Calvinists to exegete them properly, like we talked about in our previous episode on the biblical reasons to reject determinism. Uh, and and the very reason that this man is rejecting uh, our teachings is because he has free will. Uh, and this is the, the the point we're trying to get to is that the, to even have a rational discussion, a rational debate, I think intuitively we have to affirm, that, that freedom of the will, libertarian freedom of the will truly does exist. Yeah, and, and think about that. Uh, he says that Calvinism has been tested. Well, who is doing the testing? Is it, uh, again, uh, this, this person who said that this view has been tested, if this person, I can't remember his name, um, what's his name, Braxton, who asked the question? Uh, T. Grogan. Grogan? Yep. Okay, so if, if Grogan's... Uh, if the mad scientist is causally determining everything that Grogan thinks of and about and exactly how Grogan thinks of and about it, including his testing and evaluating and judging thoughts, those are not up to Grogan, but the mad scientist. How can Grogan rationally affirm that he has tested Calvinism correctly? Go. You can't do it. It's impossible. There, there's Grogan doesn't do any testing on exhaustive divine determinism. It's all the mad scientists, and you can replace the mad scientists with physics and chemistry or with God, and you're going to have the exact same rationally, rationality problems, but for different reasons. But it's still a rationality problem. You can't do it. You, and so when the Bible says, you know, test the spirits, well, who's supposed to do that if God is causally determining all of my testing, the way I test things? All right. Is it me that's doing the testing or is it God? Yeah. I think it's obvious. Yeah. Rationality goes well, out and, the window. And, as far as we yeah. can tell, moral responsibility seems to go out the window. Um, it, it's at a great cost. And then at the end of the day, after the great cost has been had, whatever we think that's wrong, God determined for us to think that wrong thing. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, so, and there's a little debate going on in the side chat. I was kind of reading through some of those, too. And, uh, and, and people seem to think that if it's not determined by God, it must be random or just this chance, just, you know, just it just happens. 
Uh, and that's not what we're arguing. We're, we're arguing that a, a, the choice is, is determined by the chooser. Uh, we believe in what might be referred to as even self-determination. And in other words, God has created, mysterious as it is, because God is able to create uh, beings with libertarian freedom. That's that's a, a power we believe he possesses, whereas Calvinists often argue that he doesn't have that power to, to, to be able to do that because it would be creating another God in their mind for some reason. At least that's been the yeah. argument of some Calvinists. But, just um, people, just people in the image of God, in the likeness of God. That's all it is. Exactly, and yeah. and that means that we're able to determine our own determinations. God's not mm -hmm. determining what I will determine. God has determined for me to make my own determinations, and I think He has that power. Do you do you deny that God has the power to create beings that have the ability to make choices that aren't determined by Him? I do. You apparently don't. Now, I believe he could have done it Calvinistically. He could have done a theistic deterministic world. He could have done that because he's powerful enough to create beings that are just causally determined by him. But I also think he's powerful enough to create beings who are not determined by him. Do you affirm that? If you don't, then you've just denied that God's all-powerful. You've just right. said that God's limited. And therefore, I'm saying my God, my view of God is more free than your view of God. My, my view of God is more powerful than your view of God, because you have limited God's ability to only be able to create determined creatures. I have expanded it to say God can not only, not only can he create determined creatures, he also can create free creatures, libertarianly free creatures. And that may be a mystery beyond our full comprehension as uh, finite beings, but I think he can do things I don't fully understand yeah. because he's God. And, and, and here's the thing, and we said this a little bit on the last episode, but but here's the thing. The only out someone could have to say, well, he's still omnipotent, but he just can't give people free will, would be to say that there's a logical contradiction because omnipotence doesn't entail that God's able to uh, do things that are logically contradictory things because those aren't things. But the problem is, mm -hmm. and this is what we said on the last episode, I think, is that, look, um, if you're a Christian and you believe that God created the universe from nothing, then there was nothing external to God to determine his actions. So at least he has libertarian freedom, which means in, con in theory, the concept must be true if you believe in God, as far as I can tell, because there was nothing external to God to determine his actions. And then all we're saying from there, and Leighton, you got criticized once for, and they said it's borderline heresy for you to say this, um, that, uh, that, that, that we, that, that create, that, that we're able to create, we're made in the image of our creator. The, the salient difference here is we are able to create it, it, because we're made in the image of God, but we're not creating universes from nothing. We're creating choices from pre-existing influences, right? So, uh, self-determination right. doesn't seem to have a problem here. And before I, uh, either pass over to you or move on, I wanted to say thanks to, uh, the unapologetic apologists. Um, for the $5 super chat, my eyes, too many bald heads, too many shining. I'm pretty sure these bald heads are just compensating for small brains. All right. Well, you can, Hey, if you give me $5, I'll take the insults, man. That's right. Uh, all right. Um, anything else to say on what I just, uh, spouted before we go on? I think you got it. All right, good. This is the last clip for those that are listening. And um, uh, this is the one that I've been looking forward to getting to the most. And that is the issue of the problem of evil and whether or not Calvinism has an adequate, adequate response to arguments from evil. So even if it's a, it's a lengthy clip, just stick with us. This is going to be good. 
All right. He also says that Calvinism fails to adequately address atheistic arguments from evil. And then he lists four possible responses to the problem of evil, which include uh, character building. Heaven will render earth a veil of tears. Uh, he says the Calvinist response, people in hell glorify God because he can exercise judgment. And then he says, my view, libertarian free will. Uh, and then he presents a theodicy there. He says the first three still place God as the author of evil. God acts in opposition to his own nature and is the direct cause of evil in this world. Without libertarian free will, the free will answer is not available. Um, yes, I agree with that. So I agree that without libertarian free will, the free will answer is not available to respond to the problem of evil. Mm -hmm. Which some people need to recognize in the Reformed community or the Calvinistic community, by the way. Yeah. Okay. And then he says, well, he says the cash value of this is that without belief in some form of libertarian free will, the free will answer is not available. If the free will answer is not available, then Calvinists are left with no adequate answer to atheistic arguments from evil. Yeah. So I think here the first conditional is true and the second one is false. So yes, uh, the cash value of this is that without belief in some form of libertarian free will, the free will answer is not available. Mm -hmm. so that's true. And the second one is, if free will is not available, then Calvinists are left with no adequate answer to the atheistic arguments from evil. No, that's false. We are not left without an adequate answer. <clears throat> we give the exact same response that you give to natural evil. Um, mm -hmm. God has sufficient reasons for evil and good purposes or good intentions, right? With the classic uh, Genesis 50 text, you know, what you meant for evil, uh, God meant sure. for good. So um, we're saying that God has sufficient reasons for evil and he has good purposes and good intentions uh, in bringing it about. And it's important to note that, um, so Braxton, Braxton here is saying, libertarian free will is his theodicy. He's not just a defense. Uh, that's an interesting, uh, so st strong claim to make because a theodicy is an account of how you think that God, why do you think God actually allows evil in this world? Right. You know, evil happens because, and then fill in the blank. That's a theodicy as opposed to just a defense, which uh, Alvin Plantinga draws the distinction between those two. Plantinga says a defense is just an account of what could possibly be the case to show that evil and God are not incompatible. To say, here's the possible reason that he could allow this to show that if, that's reason, if that reason were true, then the two would be uh, compatible and true. So we show that the, the evil and God are not incompatible by saying this, but we're not committed to saying that's the reason. Mm -hmm. We're just saying that's a possible coherent reason. So here, uh, Braxton is not saying that free will is his defense. He's saying it's his theodicy. So he's saying, this is the reason why God allows evil. So now he needs to be careful. I don't know if he takes it this far or if, you know, if it's just a quick statement in a debate. I don't want to okay. press, press too much. But he needs to be careful that liberty and free will does not explain all evil, even on his view. Right? There yeah, okay. Let me, let me respond to that first before I kick it over to you guys. First of all, um, that is, we do think that free will answers natural evil, and we're going to come to that. That's right. That's the issue we most importantly want to get to. But yes, I'm aware of the difference, and I meant what I said. Free will is my theodicy. Um, my theodicy actually encompasses all the other, uh, all of the other theodicies I mentioned in the debate, except perhaps for the Reformed theology. And there, I would still say I believe God has a plan that He's working out uh, toward a redemptive end. Um, it's just that on our view, because of the free will, it allows for God to redeem evil things without wanting the evil thing to happen in the first place. Um, he, he, he sees the evil that happens and he's able to bring something beautiful out of it and redeem it. But he didn't right. want the evil thing to happen. Um, now, what, what I want to say is why the theodicy versus defense. 
Yeah, I teach a class on the problem of evil at our school, and I often point out that in the logical arguments from evil in, versus the evidential arguments from evil, in the logical argument, it's making a stronger statement, but is easier to reject. Because with the logical argument, you're saying, um, therefore God must not exist or God does not exist. All you have to do to get out of the teeth of that one is to give a, a defeater or a defense, to show any possible explanation that might even remotely possibly be true that would get you out of the teeth of, of that problem, a reason why a loving and just God who's all-powerful and all-knowing might allow for some evil. So um, the free will uh, answer there could work as a defeater. You don't even have to know whether it's true. So long as it's possible, then the logical argument goes away. That's why atheists, uh, atheologians have gone away from logical arguments. And there's a great book, Evidential Arguments from Evil, edited by Daniel Howard Snyder, that puts together a collection of essays from theists and atheists all discussing this issue. And you can see in there again and again and again and again, people like William Rose saying, yeah, that's that's been put to bed. Now you need to go with more probabilistic. That's making a softer claim that's saying, we're not saying therefore God doesn't exist. We're saying given certain gratuitous evils that don't seem to have a, 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 a redemptive purpose uh, or an overarching good, then it's less likely that God does not exist. And, and there, yeah, I'm offering free will not just as a defeater, but as a theodicy, meaning I'm willing to yeah. defend it. I'm willing to defend it yep. to the hilt. I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. Uh, I don't have Cartesian certainty about it, but I'm pretty darn, uh, I'm pretty darn confident. I'll just put it that way. So, so yeah, I meant theodicy instead of just defeater. Uh, it wasn't just a passing statement in a debate. Having said that, uh, I'll pass it over to you guys, and, and um, uh, you guys can can talk about this. And if, if if you say what I would say, then we'll just leave it at that. If you don't, I'll give my answers <laughs> to these things. <laughs> well, Leighton, uh, I've got a lot to say on this, so why don't you go first? Well, uh, first I'll mention the biblical argument that he makes out of um, Genesis, uh, where he speaks of uh, Joseph's brother selling him into slavery. This was uh, brought up in my debate with Chris Date on the Unbelievable program. Um, and and one, one of the issues with a Calvinist is that we as, as non-Calvinists can concede that God did mean for an evil event to come to pass, like the crucifixion, for example, uh, like the hardening of Pharaoh's heart to where the plagues took place. Uh, there are things that God, uh, that are even evil, evil, bad events uh, that God actually means to, to happen or intends to take, to take place. Um, but what you have to understand in those situations is that God doesn't have to causally determine the brother's pride and lust to do so. For example, we see in 1 uh, John 2.16, it says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, this is not from the Father, but from the world. And so the, the pride of the brothers and their jealousy for Joseph, that's not from the Father, that's from the world. God didn't causally, i.e., sovereignly decree for the brothers to have pride. He simply knows their pride. He knows their behavior is bad, and he uses them in their their sinful intentions, which is actually originally to kill him, um, and 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 may even circumstantially work within those uh, situations to make sure that instead they sell him into slavery, which is an evil event that God intended to take place. But that doesn't change our view of of that perspective in saying like I've used uh, the analogy of the, the police in a sting operation. The police can use criminals. He don't, don't make them criminals. He doesn't he didn't cause their criminal behavior, but he knows, the police officer knows the criminals in the neighborhood. They know their intentions and therefore uses those intentions to bring about a sting operation, the selling of drugs at a particular date and time. Well, 
if, if the cops can do that, how much more so could God do this, where he knows the intentions of sinners, he knows the intentions of Judas and Pilate during the time of Christ, and he uses those intentions to bring about a good purpose through a sinful event. And so these are the kinds of situations that I think are so important to understand that that that, that no way uh, violates uh, libertarian free will in any in any sense of the word. And plus, we would also say that natural disasters like the toiling of soil and labor pains that we see in Genesis, those are a result of a libertarian free choice, the choice to uh, eat of the tree. The fall came as a result of a libertarian free choice. And so, the, he, he, again, he's not really hitting our actual theological views by making statements like that. Maybe he's just not aware of our particular perspectives on that on that issue. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Tim, go for it. Yeah, well, you know, uh, I appreciate that uh, Vignon admits that uh, the free will defense, or namely the libertarian free will defense, uh, that it works against the problem of evil and that it's not available for the Calvinist. Um, but to Bignon's credit, I believe I've heard him say this before. Uh, I think he's said that when he's having conversations with atheists and if they're really pressing him, on the problem of evil, he'll say, look, I don't uh, affirm this view myself, but this is a Christian view, and he'll give the free will defense in a libertarian sense to, uh, to defeat their uh, attack against Christianity um, via the problem of evil. So I think that's a fantastic tactic. And what I love about uh, being on here is, look, he doesn't affirm this view himself, but he keeps it in his back pocket for apologetic purposes, and he'll take it out, and he'll give it to the uh, to the skeptic or the agnostic or the atheist, um, or maybe to a fellow Christian who's really struggling with the idea, he'll use it as an apologetic. And I say, way to go. I think more Christians need to use that tactic. I do similar things. I don't affirm that evolution is true, but if I run into somebody who that's their big problem, I'll say, well, look, I've got a, I've got a model here that shows that evolution is at least uh, logically compatible with the historical and literal Adam and Eve. Um, and here you go. I don't hold it myself, but here you go. And and, and then the, the the teeth are taken out of the bite of the objection at that point. Anyway, I see Beyond doing that, and I say, way to go, Guillaume. Uh, keep doing that, and that's a great tactic. But with that said, um, let me talk about the fact that he uh, assumes a certain response from the three of us libertarian freedom fighters. Um, you know, that is to say that Bignon counted on us to respond to the problem of natural evil in a manner that does not include libertarian freedom, but Bignon counted wrong here uh, because Molinism not only defeats, well, I mean, Molinism, since it assumes libertarian free will, that's part of the package, you can de defeat the problem of moral evil, but I believe you can also use Molinism uh, combined with the free will defense to offer a powerful solution to the problem of natural evil. Uh, I've even argued that you can uh, attack this, uh, what seems to be gratuitous evil. And I've, uh, with Equivus Erasmus, once again, we have a journal article that's been submitted um, where we demonstrate that even the problem of divine hiddenness can be accounted for here. So um, you know, you get a lot of guys, a lot of skeptics and anti-Christians. I think of Neil deGrasse Tyson, for example. You know, he's a scientist, a great astrophysicist, uh, a science popularizer, but he also spends a lot of his time uh, popularizing, uh, an, you know, a bad argument 
against Christianity. And, and basically it comes down to this, that if, uh, well, he just says, look, I, I see all, you know, uh, an earthquake that killed a quarter million people in Haiti. I see earthquakes, tornadoes, disease, childhood leukemia, throwing the coronavirus on top of that. I see all of this and, and, uh, and I don't see evidence that God is both all good and loving and all powerful simultaneously. He says it can't be both. And so therefore, Christians, if your view of God is that he is omnibenevolent, you know, all good and loving, perfectly good and loving and perfectly powerful, well, then we have empirical evidence now that Christianity is false. The Christian view of God is false. Well, I contend that if Tyson were aware of Molinism, then he, then he wouldn't make such claims. In fact, uh, I think of Paul Draper, a well-known atheist philosopher. He says uh, that logical arguments from evil, he says, are a dying or a dead breed, and even an omnipotent and omniscient being uh would have good reasons to allow evil for the sake of obtaining some important good. Well, I think uh, Bignon would agree. The difference, it seems to me, is that the Calvinist at this point, when you ask, well, what is it? They got a punt to mystery, but the Molinist can ex uh, explain exactly what this important good is. And I think at least one of these important goods is that this temporary suffering-filled world allows humans the ability to freely love for eternity. So we got to keep eternity in mind here, to freely love for eternity. And it teaches us not to take a perfect state of affairs for granted. And we have biblical uh, data showing us that uh, beings uh, do take perfect states of affairs for granted, that finite beings do. Adam and Eve, Satan, and a third of all the angels seemed to take a perfect suffering-free state of affairs for granted and they erect it. So with this in mind, I think we can answer the following question. You know, why did God call this world very good like he did in Genesis 131? Well, pay attention. That's because God knew it would, right? It would, which implies God's middle knowledge if possessed logically prior to God's creative decree, okay? God, because God knew it would, lead to an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison that Paul discusses in 2 Corinthians 4.17, right? God has eternity in mind, and we ought to as well. Now, let me wrap up here. I, I offer a, a sight, or a, sight a, a sound and airtight syllogism, <laughs> seems to me, uh, demonstrating this in my discussion. But for the sake of this quick conversation, just let me sum it up like this, uh, that God desires a genuine and true love relationship with all people for eternity. Uh, this assumes that what the Bible says, that God is love. It keeps in mind biblical data like 1 Timothy 2.4 that says that God wants all people to be saved. And 2 Peter 3.9 that says God doesn't desire anybody to perish. This keeps in mind God's omnibenevolence, right? God's He's perfectly good and perfectly loving. So that's the first thing to remember, that God desires a genuine and true love relationship with all people for eternity. And the next thing to keep in mind is that a genuine and maximal love between two persons requires libertarian freedom to be possessed by both persons. And so God creates humanity with libertarian free will so we can experience true and maximal love with our creator. Now, I'm not just assuming that. I'm not begging the question. Go to my website. I've got articles, several articles on it. Go to my YouTube channel, the Free Thinking Ministries YouTube channel. You'll find it there. Uh, read my article in Perry Caresa 16.2 and stay tuned for my soon-to-be-published dissertation. I make arguments for this. The next thing to keep in mind 
is that beings who are created in perfect states of affairs, who also possess libertarian freedom, take perfect states of affairs for granted and freely choose to leave or ruin perfect states of affairs. And I already mentioned, we've got biblical data of this, Adam, Eve, Satan, and a third of all the angels. So with all that in mind, God creates a world where he knew, right, middle knowledge in mind, where he knew that libertarian free humans would experience evil in limited amounts so that they would not take the perfect state of heavenly affairs for granted and freely choose to ruin it for eternity. This makes sense of what Paul is describing in 2 Corinthians 4.17. And lastly, if this is all the case, then God creating a world where he knew that free creatures in a libertarian sense, would learn from our evil and evil mistakes, as well as natural suffering like the coronavirus, right? All of this is actually good and loving, and it's a gift from God. So that's all I got to say about that. Well, you know, you know something, though, uh, uh, Tim, that if you just take what you said there about if free will makes love possible, genuine love, and if yeah. that love is going, it has eternal potential there, that it, that it will last eternally, mm -hmm. then that means that it is a potential infinite, which blows out. I mean, nothing will equal that. No, nothing, nothing can can yeah. ever, can topple that over. And uh, Joshua Leclear, I'm going to come to your statement in just a moment. Thanks for the super chat. But I want to say this. So, and and I, like I said, this is the one I wanted to get to. And what Tim just said is gold. Let me add this on top of it. Um, is is that. We, we do believe, as Leighton said, that even the natural evil goes back to a original free choice by original parents, our original parents in the garden. Now, let, now I, I don't I can say that full stop. But what if you said, well, hold on a second, man. Uh, what, what, if, what if theistic evolution is true or what if old earth creationism is true or what if, you know, whatever. All right. Hold up. Um, again, some will say, well, this is speculative theology. And that's right, because what we're doing here is we're not. This is not us trying to um, respond to an atheist. And even if we were, we're just trying to show a way that our Christian theology can make sense of this. This is inside baseball with us responding to another uh, Christian beyond. And I think it's fair to say that a possibility is that if our original parents, um, if our original parents had not sinned, and let's say uh, earthquakes, hurricanes, things like that were going on in the world on one of these other old earth or theistic evolution. Say those things, the shifting of plates and things like that are important to the functioning of a world for whatever reason. That's a part of what it means for it to be a, a world that, that makes sense and functions and whatever. Uh, that doesn't mean that if Adam and Eve had chosen to stay in the garden, that they wouldn't have been protected from all of those things. And even if all those things were going on and man populated beyond the bounds of the garden, the, the, the garden in the sense of staying in the presence of God, God would have served as the perfect king, just as like he wanted for Israel all along, not to have a human king, but to uh, look at him as their king. He could have, in this face-to-face, -face, walking in the garden sort of way, guided them away from these natural evils. There are That's all right. kinds of ways right. to handle these problems, but yes, there is nothing, whether you're a theistic evolutionist, an old earth creationist, or a young earth creationist, there is no problem with the idea that a sin on the part of our original parents resulted in natural evils. Now, I actually like what Matt Chandler says about this. Um, in terms of natural evil, I always get annoyed whenever it's the case that some um, famous preacher comes out whenever there's something like coronavirus or Hurricane Katrina and says, you know, that's God punishing uh, America for right. um, homosexuality and abortion. And I think 
Hurricane yeah. Katrina in New Orleans seems like an odd place to punish America for homosexuality and abortion. There's some more obvious targets, I think. Right. Not that we would want that. But the thing about it is there <laughs> right. is there are things that we could say are passive judgments of God. And any evil that happens in this world is, in a sense, a passive judgment yeah. of God because it would not have happened had we not fallen. But then there are active right. judgments of God that are things like, I'm sorry for the preaching, but there are active judgments of God, which are things like uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. That is a clear active judgment of God. Now, perhaps coronavirus is an active judgment of God, but the preacher who goes out and says so doesn't know. I don't know. He doesn't know yeah. any, any more about that until we get special revelation that says so. So any way you want to cut yeah. this, the free will theodicy not only takes care of moral evil, but also what we could call natural evil. Well said. And uh, just quickly add, you know, to the person that says, well, what if evolution is true? What if uh, old earth creationism is true? Uh, that doesn't matter. Uh, in fact, I talk about this in my dissertation, but if somebody wants to uh, find, uh, you know, just my beginning thoughts on that matter, I have an article called Should Christians Oppose Evolution? And in that article, I, I, like I said earlier, I don't affirm it, but I show that even if it is true, you can still get certain things. And I think uh, you can still get a literal historical Adam and Eve. It's at least possible. Um, and so once you get that, uh, now your, uh, the, your answer to the problem of natural evil based on their first free choice uh, makes sense as well. So, Yeah, um, I forget the name of the guy, but there's a guy, maybe you know, Swamidas, is that right? The Yeah, Joshua Swamidas. Yeah, we're friends. Oh, okay, cool. He was yeah. just recently on Capturing Christianity, Cameron Bertuzzi's channel, um, and and they and they were uh, and he and um, Michael Jones and um, and Cameron discussed right. all these different models. Now you can still have an, uh, a historical Adam, and um, and he's working with Craig now on, on a book together. I think so. Right. So that's pretty cool. Yep. Uh, so we've come to the end of this. Uh, there was one clip I left out where he went through some of the biblical passages that I gave, but. Um, if my memory serves me, we covered a lot of that in the, in the last broadcast that we did on Layton's channel. So, um, you know, I, I, I feel confident with this. Uh, does anybody have anything else they want to add before we sign off? I, I will just say that I think there's a practical issue here at, at hand. Um, and this goes to the, the tenableness that we talked about. If it's, un, if it's a, if a, a worldview is untenable, uh, then it should be rejected for for that reason, if no no other reason. Um, and this gets to if you believe that God is ultimately decisively in control of your desires and choices, then if you happen to be one who struggles with addictions or with sinful thoughts and actions and those kinds of things, this was part of my testimony as a young Calvinist where I was dealing with some addictive behaviors in my own life. And, uh, and so my conclusion was first to start doubting whether I was elect because I would begin to wonder whether God would elect somebody and then have have these desires and these lustful right. thoughts and things. And yeah. so so I first started doubting whether I was elect or not. And then once I was told that um, if you have any desire to follow God, then it must come from God. You must be alive. You must be uh, reborn. You must be regenerated if you have that desire. So I go, oh, okay, well, then that must mean I'm, I am elect. And so then, therefore, I would go, okay, then why am I struggling with this this lust or this issue or this addiction? And then the only answer I can come up with, at least if I'm consistent within the logic of my Calvinism, is, well, because God decreed for me to have these desires. 
um, these, this lust is from the decree of God. That's ultimately the cause of it. And therefore, my only recourse really is to say, God, please remove this lust. And I even had people around me saying, well, it's a, that's the thorn in the flesh, that, that, that lust that you have. That's the thorn in the flesh. Yeah. And God gives it to you to keep you humble. And, and so I, I'd really fallen into this addiction and, and really began to think, okay, God has decreed for me to have this lustful uh, addiction, and, and I can't stop doing this seemingly. I keep pro promising God I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to fall into this addiction anymore. I'm not going to do this anymore than I, of course, inevitably would. Um, and then, I, well, God must be what God decreed. And let me just say, there is nothing worse for the the healing of an addict than the than the idea that God has sovereignly decreed for you to desire to do something for His own glory, nonetheless. Mm. Until you own that as your own choice, your own determination. In other words, God has, as First Corinthians ten thirteen says, given you a way out. He has given you all that you need to resist the temptation, and you have to own. I messed up. I looked at that pornography when I shouldn't have. I I clicked on that link, and it that was my libertarianly free choice. That was not a sovereign decree of God that I could not control. Until you own your actions and your behaviors and your choices, you can't begin to find true freedom. At least that, that's my testimony. Now, I'm not trying to put that onto every Calvinist. Sometimes Calvinists may not make the link that I made. I'm just simply giving you a testimony of one Calvinist, young Calvinist, when I was in my 20s, who struggled with this, and when I've given testimony on this on my broadcast, there at Sociology 101, I've had dozens of young 20-year-old guys just emailing me and say, I've been struggling with the exact, exact same things, oh, wow. uh, many of which are coming from the same background because they're, they're falling into a more fatalistic mindset of saying, well, I guess God decreed for me to have these sinful desires and thoughts. Um, and that is devastating to recovery. Uh, just like in the Alcoholics Anonymous, the, you know, the first step is what? You have to own your your sin. You have to say, yeah. you know, my name is Leighton Flowers, and I am a whatever it is. And you've got you've got to own it. And that that's true of any sin. You've got to own it. And the only way, practically speaking, that you can own it, I believe, is to affirm a libertarian freedom of the will that you are responsible for your decisions, and that and that you self determine. You are the determiner of your determinations. And that's the only practical way to live uh, theologically uh, in a healthy environment. Well, I appreciate that. And um, that's a powerful kind of pastoral note here. I, I did remember that I wanted to get to a couple of these comments. Uh, I, you know, we're not going to go through. Typically, I always take question and answer in these live streams. But uh, this has been a really long one. We're right now at an hour and 36 minutes. Uh, but uh, I do want to at least get to the Super Chats. Joshua LeClear says, do Calvinists have a satisfactory answer for gratuitous evil at all? Thank you, guys. Now, uh, first of all, I'm going to take up for the Calvinists a little bit here. And that is that gratuitous evil refers to evil that has no purpose, or no good that comes from it. So William Rowe famously wrote an article in which he gives two examples of what he thinks are gratuitous evils. So in one case, a tree is struck by lightning, falls in the woods, lands on a, a, a fawn, and burns up, and the fawn burns up. There's not even anything from the deer for the, uh, you know, for other animals to benefit from in eating the deer. And he says, if you got a problem with this one somehow, we can imagine one that probably has happened that there is no good from. Um, and then in another case, he says a man comes home and kills his whole family and kills himself, and there's nothing good that comes out of this. Uh, the Calvinist would say, I think, to this exactly what I would say, and that is um, that. First of all, you have no way of demonstrating that there isn't some good that comes out of that that you just can't see. 
Um, Stephen Weikstra produced an argument called the cornea argument that it makes this very point. You know, I, if I look out my back window, I can't say there are no worms in the backyard just from looking out my window because I wouldn't expect from looking out my window that I would know if there are worms in the backyard mm -hmm. from looking out my window. But on the and, and on the Calvinist position, they would say anything that happens, anything, no matter how wicked and evil, there there is always going to be, it's not going to be gratuitous. There is going to be something God is working out of that. So I can defend the Calvinist in that respect. The, 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 the criticism I would have of my Calvinist brothers and sisters would be to say that it's all gratuitous in the sense that if your ca compatibilistic determinism is true, God could have again done it such that he determined everyone to freely on a compatibilist understanding of freedom, always done only the right thing and nothing natural or moral evil ever had to happen. Mm -hmm. so, so that would be my answer to that. Do you have anything you want to add guys? Yeah, just that God is the conditional, you know, they talk about the conditional ability that conditional is on an exhaustive divine deterministic view, God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, another one here, another super chat. Jacob Brown says, this has been a great discussion between three of my favorite apologists. Thanks guys for the great resource. And I have to say, hey, it's Jake. a fun day for, for Trinity Radio to have you two guys on here. Too bad Pritchett's not with us. Yeah, um, no kidding. And, uh, and then lastly, I do want to put here, uh, Daniel James Hole. I've had... Uh, I've talked with him before. Um, a wonderful guy, wonderful guy, very interested in apologetics. And he says, as a Calvinist, I appreciate this live stream. I disagree strongly, uh, but all three of you speak kindly and thoughtfully. God bless. And, and I do want to, uh, again, especially in light of the fact that I have a large atheist uh, contingency in my argument, in my uh, audience <laughs> and the target of my <laughs> arguments. Um, but, uh, but, but I want to say uh, that this is inside baseball. Um, if, if you are, I'll say something like what Tim hinted at a moment ago. If you are a Calvin, if you're an atheist and you say, I just can't get past determinism. I just have to believe determinism is the case for whatever reason. We all think you're wrong. And we think that we get, can give good reasons why you're wrong, but that shouldn't prevent you from becoming a Christian because there are, right. there are Christians who are determined. <laughs> that's right. You know? so, yeah. so, so, uh, so, so anyway, that's really important. And, and, uh, Bignon is a careful thinker. Uh, we all love him. We, we would, we would sing worship songs in church right next to him. We could probably amen a lot of the same sermons. So, uh, and okay. I want to, I want to make sure that that is clearly said, even though we've made some very straightforward, bold comments here. But with that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty well at the place where I'm ready to, to, to start to tie this off. What do you guys have to say? Anything else? Well, I just want to apologize uh, for my video. I'm looks like I'm having uh, problems with my bandwidth or, or something here at my house. So uh, next week, uh, I'll be launching, officially launching the Free Thinking Ministries YouTube channel. Uh, we're planning right now for a, a week from today. So I'll have Braxton and Layton on my channel. Uh, so find us on, on YouTube uh, under Free Thinking Ministries and make sure you subscribe right now and, uh, and watch our conversation. Uh, will be the three of us will be discussing Bignon's objections specifically towards me next week and primarily against the free thinking argument. And so it'll be kind of a philosophical approach. So uh, hopefully uh, I'll have better bandwidth by then. And it'll, it'll be a fantastic co conversation between the three of us. 
And, and I would just add, if you haven't, if you didn't see the first video, you can go to Sociology 101, and we get a little bit more focus on the biblical arguments that are brought up by Ben Young. So uh, you can find those there, and I'll maybe put it in the uh, the side chat here, a link to that to see the first uh, video. Yeah, and again, if you're watching this later on down the road, check out the playlist for this. Maybe there's a playlist on each of our channels. There definitely will be on mine. Um, uh, Jay, now I'm guessing, I, I'm sorry if I butcher the pronunciation there. Uh, thank you so much for that super chat. That is so meaningful to me. Um, you say thank you for your time and thoughts on these difficult, deep thoughts. And, and we, we thank you for, for helping make ministries like this possible. Um, we, don't, we don't require anyone to give, but we sure do appreciate it when people give. Thank you so much for freely, in the libertarian sense, giving uh, to, the, to, this, uh, to this show. Um, yeah, please do subscribe to both of these guys' channels. Uh, I benefit from from each of them. They're some of my favorite thinkers and people, and uh, appreciate that so much. And tomorrow, uh, we're going to have a premiere. Uh, we already recorded it, but it's going to be a premiere, so it'll happen live, um, of a discussion that Jonathan Pritchett and I had with Adam Coleman. It's the last in our series responding to Hemet Meta on 78 questions for Christians. And tomorrow, we're dealing with um, virgin birth questions and questions about differences in denominations and what would make me stop believing in God. And there's all kinds of good stuff in there. You want to be there for that. We'll try to do that about 10 o'clock, I think, unless that changes. So make sure that you not only subscribe here and to these two guys, but click the notification bell so that you'll get notifications when we send them out. But with that, um, it's been fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All of you who showed up for the chat and thank you guys for being with me here and we'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.